Welcome to Confessions of a CEO. Um, my name is Carl Swansbury, and I'm delighted today to be able to interview Neil Stevenson. Many of you will know Neil Stevenson, but for those who don't, uh, Neil is a very successful entrepreneur. Uh, he helped build and fundamentally go on to sell Onyx, which is an IT services business based in Teesside. Since then, Neil has become a serial investor, non-executive director, and board advisor, and works with many businesses across sectors on all aspects of growth, change, and transformation. And I, for one, have had the pleasure of being able to work with Neil and some of the businesses he sits on the board of when it comes to advising on M&A, including acquisitions, disposals, equity, and debt raising. I've been looking forward to getting Neil onto this podcast for some time, and today, I think we are all absolutely in for a treat. Neil, it's absolutely brilliant to be able to get some time with you one-on-one, uh, without the board, without a shareholder group, and indeed without lots of other people around us. So massive thanks uh, for joining me on this podcast this afternoon, Neil. The first question I wanted to ask, um, because I think that it will probably set the scene for the conversation that follows, is just to understand in your formative years, things that may have happened that have actually maybe motivated you slash set you up um, for the success uh, and career that has followed. Okay. So with that in mind, it would be really great, Neil, just to know the thing that happened when you were super young that maybe has acted as the catalyst to encourage you to want to invest in businesses, start up businesses, grow businesses. What do you think that that, that catalyst stems from? So, so you know what, Carl? It's not a thing when I was young. Mm-hmm. And, I, and when I was young, I was definitely a different animal to what I am now. You would not have recognized me at 21 compared to 51. The 30 years difference, I, I was painfully shy. I, I was not ambitious. I was not confident. I, I would not have done the things I do now then. Uh, and I think it was probably when I was 27, 28, and I met Alistair. It was probably when my world changed. But when you say Alistair, you're uh, referring to Alistair Waite? Alistair, sorry, Alistair Waite, who was one of the directors in the Onyx business. Okay. The key one. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, up until your early 20s, you were quite shy, quite reserved. Where, where does that shyness and that um, sort of maybe more introverted personality come from? I think it's just the fact that I'm a I'm somebody who's comes from a background that don't have businesses, haven't done this type of thing. My mum ran a a wallpaper business as a manager, and my dad was a school teacher. So I don't come from a business. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. So I, I don't have a background of business or to to some degree confidence. I wouldn't at school. I wouldn't have got up and been the first one to speak. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have been that confident person. I was quiet. I was shy. I was reserved. The opposite of what I am right now. <laughs> I should probably, I'm glad you said that. Man. I should probably <laughs> go back a bit towards where I uh, started off. But that's that is where I began. I was a quiet, shy, reserved young guy. Sure. And um, obviously, like me, uh, you were born here in the northeast. Neil, could you just tell me a little bit more about your education and actually what fundamentally inspired you to go to university? Perhaps against the grain, given, as you said, none of your family had done. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so I was the first year to do GCSEs. So that, re that really ages me. So that That's right. You've just disclosed your date of birth then. Who else? Anyway, 51, you can work it backwards, I'm sure. You're, you're an accountant, you can do the numbers. So, so first year to do GCSE, did okay. Then I did A-level, because that was just the next thing. And catastrophically failed A-levels. Did you? Did, uh, did very poorly there. Okay. But happy to say I got a D and E and a U. Wow. Okay. Uh, so that wasn't the best of results. And just to um, ask a question about that, obviously, to that point, you know, you'd done your GCSEs uh, and did well. You know, you probably had your sights on, you know, a really exciting future. And as you say, you know, the year level exams didn't go as you had hoped. How did that make you feel? So, so probably, Carl, if you look back at that, I was an 18 year old man. Mm hmm. I was very interested in drinking beer. Mm -hmm. Very interested in girls. So what's changed, Neil? <laughs> I'm 51. That's, that's, what, that's what's changed. And I'm not interested in girls anymore. Indeed. That's my wife sees this. So, so I wasn't focused on my education at that time. It was just something I naturally did. Oh. Uh, I didn't do particularly well. I stumbled into University of Sunderland. I actually got asked to speak at an event at Sunderland University a, a good number of years later. Okay. After I'd evolved and become a slightly different person. And I always remember them saying, can you say a few words? And I said, yeah, yeah, I will. And they said, I said, what would you like me to say? And they said, tell us why you came to Sunderland University. And I said, nobody else would have me. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 don't. But that was literally the, the case. You know, that was the... The lowest course I could get on. I got a degree course, did three years. Okay. Oh. Uh, but you know that was that was the start of my start and end of my formal education, if you like. Yes, and and just tell me because obviously getting that envelope when you found out that you hadn't done as well as you'd hoped at A level must have been you know devastating. Um, how did you dust yourself down and? motivate yourself to actually go on to do a degree because maybe some people might have thrown the towel in at that point. Carl, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for the big wide world. Uh, you know, I, I speak to a lot of young people these days and I say silly things like, what do you want to do? I didn't know when I was 18, 19, 20. It's, right. it's a young age, right, to, to have your life mapped out in front of you. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 26, 27, really. I didn't. So, it, 18, 19, I just stayed in education because that seemed like the best thing to do. Mm. And I went to Sunderland University and it was only a few miles away. I, I didn't really do the, the university thing. I came and went. I didn't really stay at university and do all the nightclubby type stuff. I was, I just didn't. That wasn't, that wasn't my thing. And, and why was it, as you say, you didn't um, maybe do what lots of um, graduates choose to do and, you know, live on campus and live the university lifestyle. Why did you opt out from that? I just never did. I had a good, had a good life at home. It just never, never appealed to me. I didn't have a reason to go away. It didn't, just wasn't, wasn't uppermost in my, apart from the fact it would have cost a fortune. <laughs> yes. And my, my family aren't, aren't in, in those days able to do that type of thing. It just wasn't, it didn't seem to be a need. They really didn't have, I am quite practical, and I was quite practical even when I was young. I went to university, I got my degree, because that was the stepping stone you needed to get to the next thing. Okay. Uh, I, I graduated with a 2-2. I was pretty pleased with a 2-2. That, <laughs> that, was, that was a good effort. Well, everything's relative, right? Uh, and, so uh, in comparison to your A-levels, yeah, that, that would got, have been a, a huge success. I've got a sister-in-law who's got a first-class degree. Mm. I've got a 2-2. That's, 
that's fine. No, honestly, there's, it's a long time, Carl, since someone said to me, what did you get in university? That's right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. doesn't matter. I guess um, as you take each step in your career, in your life, the last step becomes less relevant, doesn't it? Um, so unless you are looking backward only, which of course is not what you do as a person. Nah, if it, you drive a car looking through the front road, don't you? Not exactly. exactly. So, so no, I don't. I never look back. You mentioned you mentioned that uh, when you went to Sunderland University, you knew that it was a stepping stone to something else. Talk, talk me through what that something else was for you at that time, accepting that, no doubt, you know, has changed considerably since, but, but what did you think that next step was after university? Uh, so I, I always wanted to, to work in tech. I, I grew up at the time when computers started. So, right. I spent, so I spent my formative years as a kid typing computer programs in from books. The kids these days who download things are the luckiest people in the world. I type everything in word for word and the, the spectrums and the oh, BBC computers. I, I did all that and I loved that. And it, that was my love. I, I love tech. I understood it intuitively. It was, it was my passion. Your biggest hobby almost at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I loved it. I did computers at, at university. I loved that. I wanted to work in IT. Right. Okay. Uh, but I probably knew pretty early that I wasn't brilliant at that. I could program. I understood it. But I wasn't brilliant. And I think I knew that. And that's why when I got the opportunity to go to, to Vaux Breweries, that was just the, the obvious thing to do. There was a bit of tech involved. It was a local business, a well-known employer. And I thought, I do three years here. I'll get a bit of experience. I'll get a bit of knowledge. I'm still young. I'm sure they'll look after me. Great place to work. And uh, let's just talk a little bit about that because obviously you graduated with a 2-2 from Sunderland University uh, and your decision then was what comes next. And of course, you know, as a, a young man in Sunderland with a 2-2, I guess, you know, there were lots of options available. So, so specifically, <laughs> why did you decide to join Vaux Brewery? And specifically, why as a marketing executive? What, what did you think that opportunity was going to give you? So I liked, so I didn't deliberately choose folks. That was one of the things I was looking at. They were the first ones to offer me a job. Right. I was so pleased. Got no idea how pleased I was just to get a job. You know, in, a, in the tough times of the early 90s, I got a job. Awesome. Straight out of university. I think I started end of August, something like that. I'd only just graduated a few months before. It was yeah, so no, pretty, pretty quick into employment. Yeah, it was. And, and I loved the fact that it was a well-known employer. Every time I spoke to somebody and I said I work, work at the brewery, they're like, wow. It was about three miles from where I lived. It had the two greatest things in life. It had sport and drink. Oh, perfect. That uh, is absolutely good. A, a 21, 22-year-old guy who's told basically that you have to go to all the sporting events and you have to have a beer when you go. I thought, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> that feels really good. And, and I used the analytical, the data side of things in the marketing department to begin with. Oh. And then I realized I needed to add those marketing skills that I didn't have. I worked in the dynamic marketing team where they spent a lot of money on TV advertising and stuff like that. I had to go to Gateshead College two nights a week to do all the marketing qualifications. That was really hard. And you were doing that alongside full-time employment? Yeah, Tuesday and Thursday nights, That's six to nine o'clock, every week. No sooner had I passed one set of exams, I had to do the next ones. And I just, so I'd come out of university and not really wanting to be in academia. 
and going straight into doing that because you just, it was obvious. Why was it obvious? There's been a few times you've said that uh, it has been obvious to make a decision to effectively work incredibly hard in pursuit of something else. So, so, so how is that so obvious to you? It just was. I think it's really hard to connect the dots backwards. I think it's more interesting going forward. So when you look, when you're forward and you look back to where you've been, the marketing and markets are really so important to a lot of the stuff I do. Understanding that's just critical. And I didn't, didn't understand that. I didn't understand the marketing piece. I wanted to. I liked the commercial piece. I thought you could sell, but I didn't understand the marketing bit. Mm-hmm. And it was the role I was currently doing. And I thought, I just need to get, I need to put a tick in the box. I need to do this. I need to understand it. But just to, just to spend a minute on this, because it's fascinating, Neil. Because as you say, you, you spend you know, two years doing your A-levels. You spend you know, many years thereafter doing your degree. You know, you were definitely wanting to move away from academia, yet within weeks at Vaux, you were back at night school. Um, just, just talk me through um, what it was at that time that was truly inspiring you to want to work incredibly hard in a role whereby, as you say, you could have just spent a lot of time visiting lots of sport grounds, having great times. Yeah, but it, if you want to progress, you have to be able to do what everybody else can do. Yep. If probably looking back, that team I was working on at working in at Vokes were all better than me. Okay. Okay. And I, right. and I probably learned really, you know, you probably flushed that point out. Looking at the team, I probably thought these guys are all and girls were all better than me. And I just rolled my sleeves up. I thought I can't help that. I need to be as good as these people. So this was you being competitive, wanting yeah, to be in the right I, quartile. Yeah, I wanted to. And I, and I suddenly realized that maybe there were skills I didn't have. Uh, a lot of skills I didn't have. So yeah, and the only way to get them is to, to go to college. Sure. And I've been to colleges and universities and events ever since. F- feeding the brain's been really important to me. And obviously we'll talk a little bit shortly about reading because I know Neil, you love to read. Uh, and often I'll see on your social media, you reading a nice book or two at a weekend break. But, but let me just understand, what, what's your why? So, so why is it you like to feed the brain? That's a good question. I, I think I'd rather read and understand things that I don't understand than waste my time. Okay. So I'm interested in people's journeys, people's stories, how they've done things, how I can use that to, to build my own career or help other people to, to build their careers. I'm very interested in things I don't understand and I don't know from a business context. I read all the, the corporate stories about success and people who had failure as well. You always pick two or three things up in, in any book you read. You know, I've read, I read the uh, Lex Greenhill one recently. Amazing. You know, I read, uh, oh God, what's it called? It's called uh, the We Work one, Billion Dollar Loser. Oh, yeah. That's not exactly, that, but I've so, said it's so a that's, a, that's exactly the same thing. It's all just front marketing froth. The yeah. business was... Not neither of those businesses were what they were, nope. but told me a lot about marketing. So I just love reading those types of books. I like history books, what that tell you, because what happened in the past happens in the future. It just does. There's nothing new happening. Everything is just what's happened before. The poppy things in Amsterdam become the banking crises now, become the dot-com crash, become the banking crash. They're all the same thing. So it's really interesting to read. What's happened in the past tells you what's going to happen in the future. Totally. No, well, I definitely believe that. And just to go back to your why, so obviously I hear that 
you're someone, Neil, who always wants to better yourself because you acknowledge there's always more to know, more mm. to learn. And of course, it's all about perspective. But what is it that encourages you to want to better yourself? And what is it that you're trying to achieve by becoming more knowledgeable? You know, is this about wanting to create more value? Is this about wanting to be the brightest guy in the room? You know, what exactly are we pursuing when we feed the brain? Carl, if I'm the brightest man in the room, I'm in the wrong room. It's probably where we are. Yep. That is just where we are. I, I like to learn new things. I like to develop myself. I like to understand things. I think that's a perpetual thing. We, sure. we're, we're here for a period of time. If you think the things you learned when you were 18 and 19 are going to carry you all the way through till year 97, which is how long I'm going to go for, then, <laughs> then I think you're mad. You know, the world's changing all the time. You've got to keep learning. You've got to keep understanding things. I'd rather read a book. I mean, the magic thing about a book compared to TV is the story's on paper, but it all appears in your head. And everybody has a different version of what they're, what they're reading. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. I love to just sit and read. I've got a house in the lakes, you know, I like to go and sit in front of my fire in the lakes and read a book. And mm. everybody I know, I was with somebody yesterday and the first thing they did was bring me a book. Everybody brings me books. I've got the biggest bookcase ever. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it. Every time we have a Teams or a Zoom deal, uh, your, but, your book collection is on the show. But it's a fraction of the books I've got. Yeah. And I love, I mean, Alistair, who I mentioned earlier, once bought me a Kindle. And I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to buy books. I buy more books. Yeah. And I've got the Kindle. Yeah. Love the Kindle as well. So just feeding the brain's really, it's really good. I like to get up in the morning and read rather than watch the TV, read your emails and stuff like that. I like to get up and read. I've always got a book. Different books, different times. Yes, right. I, I am reading the Simon Sinek one, which I've put right. off for some time at the moment, so that's... So I'll probably be able to answer the why question better in a, in a few days' time. Well, I was actually literally watching um, Sinek on his um, TED Talk last mm. Sunday, and it was the one-and-a-half-hour um, TED Talk on why. Um, so, yeah, I think you'll find that fascinating. I certainly did. And you mentioned Alistair Witt um, two or three times, Neil, throughout. So could you just sort of maybe give me an insight into how you met Alistair? Because that probably allows us to talk a little bit about how you decided and when you decided to move on from Vox Breweries. Yeah, so I decided to move on from Vox. I woke up one day, literally woke up one day and thought, I love this business, but I don't want to work here anymore. It, I just knew it was... I was so far away from what I, what I wanted to do. Mm. It, was, it was a big organization. It just wasn't going to give me what I wanted. And I took a pay cut and took a job in Middlesbrough 35 miles away. Yep. So an interesting, uh, interesting decision. I'm, my parents couldn't believe it. it, you joined it you've left a stock market listed company to join a little possibly venture capital back business down on Teesside. But I loved it. And how big was the Onyx business? Tiny. Had 20 staff, something like that. Okay. It was tiny. Shortly after that, Alistair Wade joined to, as the MD. And I think I just saw in him like, a real mentor, somebody I wanted to be like, somebody who I just loved everything about what he did. He was super bright, super kind, mentored me and developed me. Before I knew where we were, really, we together with a third, third guy who bought the business together. And when was that? So when did you ultimately buy the Onyx business? Late 2000s, Christmas 2000. Just, okay. just as I met my wife. And that was the first time you'd ever had ownership in a business. Absolutely. First time you'd ever 
even fully potentially understood what equity was and what it meant. So just, just talk, talk me through you know, how psychologically you got comfortable with going from being an employee, getting a pay packet, to being an equity holder and being an employer. Carl, that was always my business. Even when I wasn't a shareholder, that was always my business. I loved that business. I loved the people, I loved everything about it. I loved the team. All I did was confirm what I already knew, which was that was my business. I loved that business. I really did. I loved working with Alistair. I loved that business. I put every single penny of the money that I had at that point into that. And I borrowed some to top it up. And how did you know that was the right horse to back at that time? Because it was your first real um, C-suite opportunity where equity was attaching. So how did you know that was the right horse? I don't think I even thought that way. I just knew. Yeah. I just think instinctively, I loved that business. I loved everything about it, I did. I got up early in the morning, I came home late at night. I, uh, I just loved that business. And there was never a moment where I thought, oh, I'm gonna be a shareholder now, that'll be good. It just wasn't, that wasn't. Much more fluid than that, I, much more I, organic. I, I think you talk about those type of things ages after the event. We bought it over Christmas. We completed it at the old Muggle offices oh, on, my, on my wow. birthday, yeah. 40th of January, 2001. God. With every single penny that collectively we had. Wow. It was amazing. It was, it was the best single thing I ever did. And what was the, the date you actually bought the business? 14th of January. 14th of January. Two th my birthday. 14th of January 2001. So that must have been a fascinating Christmas break. I did not much of a break. So I just met my wife. I literally just met her. I said, I, I really like you. This, this could be quite good but I'm trying to buy this business. <laughs> so so could, you, could you give us a little bit of time? And I think she kind of went, mm, okay. Mm. And I said, I tell you what, I said, I'll take you, I'll, when we get the deal done, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. And I mean this, anywhere you want to go. I thought you'd like Edinburgh. You know, Edinburgh's nice, should have a caveat that within the north of England. Uh, York's nice as well, you go to L London even's quite nice. So anyways, we're flying across to New York a few weeks there, later. There you are. Why have I done this? Anyway, I married her quite quickly after that, and that was, that was probably the best thing I ever did. Wow, and um, how long have you intended to be married now? Since 2002. Just, so, just check here there, in case she does watch this podcast. So delighted that you recall. 20 years. Wow. 20 years. And at that time, um, obviously you acquired the business. Yeah. Um, just talk me through um, how you went about prioritizing um, the business, your relationship with Tina, your life, because a lot of demands would have been placed on you right then. So how did you make sure you were putting your time into the right thing? Oh God, I definitely didn't. Okay. I spent all my time in the business. It's crazy. At the cost of? I think everybody understood. Everybody around me understood. I tried really hard, but you know, people talk about work-life balance. If you're trying to build something, that's really hard. Really, really hard. I definitely didn't get that right. I tried hard. You know, I, I definitely tried hard, but it's not easy. Long, long nights, lots of stress, lots of last minute things and ups mm. and downs, deals you're trying to do, places you've got, I mean, just a lot. But, you know, I, I, I could talk for you for a long time about the Onyx journey and what we did there, and you'd probably look and think, geez, you had to do that. I'm like, yeah, we had to do that, and that, and that. And given that, though, especially given, as you've said, your relationship with Tina then was, was new. It was exciting. It was developing, and she wanted your attention. Um, how did you um, make sure that you had balance, accepting that, as you say, sort of work-life balance is 
an interesting conundrum. But how did you find balance that worked for you at that time? Yeah, probably. Well, certainly some of the things that I'd done before that I couldn't do anymore. So I certainly had the circle of friends I had who would like to go to the local pub. That that was just out the door. That had to go. I played cricket. I was quite a good cricketer. I stopped playing cricket. I didn't have the time to do that. So you do have to hold in some of the things you did. And I had a family pretty quickly after that, so it does focus your mind a little bit. I grew up pretty quickly. In, in a very short space of time, I grew up very quickly. Because suddenly I had responsibilities, suddenly I had a family, suddenly I had a beautiful wife and a house we couldn't afford and, and all that good stuff. So it just, that's just what happens. You just, you change quickly. You have to drop some things and not do some things and do others. It's, uh, but nobody gets the work-life balance thing right. If no, they do, it's doing math. That's right. I think it's, um, it's probably the biggest thing that any person who has a demanding career and a family and lots of friends has to grapple with. And as you say, there's not an answer. It's just a continual conundrum that needs to be solved. But let me ask, obviously you mentioned there that you had to spend less time playing cricket, maybe yeah. less time with friends. I mean, at that time, did that feel like you were making a series of sacrifices? No. So what, what did it feel like? Because the way you described it felt like it was sacrificial. Well, looking back what it was, but at the time I never even thought about it. Okay. I just stopped playing cricket. I just stopped going to the pub when my friends rang up and said, I can't go to the pub when I'm busy tomorrow. And, and it sounds like those were informed, proactive choices rather than lack of time meant you couldn't. Yeah, it was just, it was just the practicalities of where we were. Yeah. And you are focused on doing, as you, as you grow, you are focused on different things different part of the journey. Of course. Well, I wasn't a child anymore. I was suddenly more like a man. Yep. I had other things to do. It just, it just evolved. Of course. Yeah. Of course. And um, we could spend, and I would love to spend at some point in the future, Neil, hours talking about the Onyx journey, but um, it would be really great now just to maybe understand when it was you started to think about um, closing the Onyx chapter if you will. It would be yeah. fascinating to understand when that started to become um, a feature of thought and, of course, how that ultimately unraveled. Yeah, so I think everybody who's a, an investor and a chief exec of a business has their, most of their net worth in one business at their point in time. And that's the passion and that's everything. But there then comes a point where you think, I probably need to take some chips off the table. I probably need to not have everything and our answer to that was to do private equity. And we did private equity and the PE house we worked with were amazing to me. And Livingbridge were fantastic. Recommend anybody to work with them. They were really good to me. Uh, and we, we did a deal where we did an original deal and then five years later it was time to do that again. So I wouldn't say I decided. I decided in 2011 when we did the first deal that there was going to be another one in five years time. And actually, I wanted to stay in the business and do something slightly different. Just the deal we negotiated was so good, so good, that you couldn't not do that. You know, it was an exit to our biggest competitor. For shareholders, it was all cash. It was just the best deal. Forget about my ego or anything like that. It was the best deal to do. I couldn't have looked the shareholders in the eyes and said, I don't want to do this. It meant I was going to go on to pastures new. I left on day one, wow. unusual. I, I didn't want to stay, I would have been in the way. I was quite a, quite a dominant figure in that business. I was known as the boss. I, I needed to get out of the way, I wasn't the boss anymore. I was not the rainmaker, I was not the, 
the king, if you like, that, that I've moved on. And honestly, um, when you ultimately moved on from Onyx, you were CEO, Neil, um, and you described um, the Onyx business that you joined as your business from day one. You know, you were just part of the fabric of the business and the business mm. was part of your fabrics. And how did that actually genuinely feel when no longer was your name on the CEO room's door and no longer there was a seat for you? How did that action really feel? So, uh, so anybody who doesn't feel like a huge sense of loss, it, I just don't get that. Mm. I cried. Oh, did you? I, I, I tied it emotional. I tidied my office, I brought my stuff down. I couldn't really say bye-bye to the staff because the new people were there and it was just, I was in the way. I came out and I sat in the car park, I had a shed a tear. Wow. I did. Well, not what afraid do you think you were crying for? Was it just because you were not needed in the business? Was it because oh, no, it was like just chapter? It was just the end of, a, of something that had been part of my life for yeah. so long. Okay. I felt like it was part of me. I knew it was coming. It just suddenly hits you. At, at six weeks where I did nothing. Six weeks after I left Onyx where I did not a thing. And then my wife sat me down and said, can you just go and find something to do? <laughs> Anything. Just not what you're doing now because you're driving us mad. Right. I, built, I built a manhunt in the back garden. I bought a, a sports car. I, you know, I washed the sports car more than I drove the bloody thing. And I've hardly been in the, man, the manhunt. But I didn't know what to do. I was lost. I definitely was. Really was. Unless you got through the to-do list of jobs that you'd probably put off meal for the 20 years prior. I did do that on day two. Yeah. Was not a, it was just a funny, when you're so used, to, I didn't get any email, I didn't get any calls. I wasn't the top of the list of, you go to events, I, I didn't even get calls to say, do you want to go to this event? Do you want to, it's almost like you disappear. Yeah. It, was a, it was a funny, funny experience. And I thought, geez, what am I going to do now? And I, and I really had two choices. I was never going to do nothing, whether you need to work or not. Mm. You know, it, the, the classic thing is you have to have a reason to live. And if you don't, nature finds a way to sort out that little conundrum pretty quickly. And I needed a reason to, to get up and do stuff. And I love business and I'd had lots of experience and done lots of things. I loved it. That had been what I'd done for so long. To then not do it was just the weirdest thing ever. And I was desperate to get back on the horse. But I never found a chief exec's job that I thought, that's going to be as good as where I've been. But I got tons of people come up to see me and say, Neil, can we, could you join my board? Could you do this? Could you do that? Chris, Chris Quickfall was the first one, Eddie QS. Oh, I didn't know uh, that was the first board you ever formally yeah, yeah. appointed to Yeah, yeah. So, the, so that just became, and then eventually after a couple of years, people would say things like, well, why haven't you done another Chief Exec's job and say, I haven't found a job that's better than what I'm currently doing because I'm loving what I'm doing. Every day is just joy, working with amazing people, investing alongside smart investors, doing all the interesting stuff, acquiring, hiring good people. It, why would you not want to do that? Don't get it. And just to go back just a few steps, Neil, when you fundamentally left Onyx, um, Obviously, the transaction was significant, uh, which presented you with um, a level of capital that I suspect you hadn't had before. Um, how did that change your outlook, if at all? The sort of financial independence point, how, how did that impact you? So, so it did, it, we did one thing that I always said we'd do, and you mentioned it earlier about the family and how the family helped and support. 
We've been going to the Lake District for a long time. Everybody who knows me knows this. We've been going to the Lake District for a long time. And I said when we do the final deal, I'll buy a house in the Lake District for everybody. For nice. the whole. And we bought a big seven, eight bedroom thing. And I kitted it out so the whole extended family could have their own spaces there. And when we were doing the deal, it was actually called Project Windermere. Because <laughs> it, right? it was about me getting the house in there. And it was just, so that was what that was the first thing we did. And it, it's something that, you know, I've said to the kids, you can do what you want, but you can't ever sell that house. You just can't ever do that. That was, and my mum and dad go nearly every week there and we're going to Easter and we just had at Winston House. It was really nice to give something back to all of your family who've supported you for many years because as you say maybe you didn't spend the time with Tina and the kids that you would have wanted to whilst you were building on it so that sounds like a really nice way to thank them for that. Okay. Honestly every time I go Alistair came to see the house after we bought it he just came because he knew just yeah. came to see it I was, he looked at me like yeah awesome. That's that just, is awesome. I love that. And it's nice to have a space you can go to that you are always grateful for mm. as a consequence of knowing how you were able to ultimately go on to buy that stunning house in the lakes. Um, obviously, you mentioned, Neil, that now, Post Onyx, um, you are an investor in businesses, a board advisor, a non-exec director. Um, one thing I was fascinated just to, to ask you is when you are working with a board, and you agree on um, the priorities for the business. How do you actually go at inspiring action in people who fundamentally just don't want to do what it takes to do what's required? Uh, so there's probably two answers to that question. So the first one is I don't work with people like that. I only work with motivated people that I can pick and choose. Yeah. So you know, I don't get married quickly because divorce is expensive. So I take my time Absolutely. working with people before I formally get to work with them. I'll get them to know me and me to know them. That's really important. Yeah. You know that, that do I like them? That is really important. I love all the people I work with, I really do. I know their families, I know their personal relationships and the journey they're on. That's all really important to me. I don't get involved with people. Yeah, you know, I regularly see people and I say one of two things. I either say, your business is amazing, but I don't like you. I couldn't work with you. Or I say, you're amazing, but I don't like your business. Would you actually say that? Yeah, I do. I literally, do it. it literally comes out of my mouth. I can't help it. And presumably you're presented by shock because it's very rare someone would be I, that direct and honest. I, I, I think people just know that is what I'm like. In a nice way. I'm not nasty, but I do I do literally say how it is. And, and just to dwell on that, because sometimes very capable people lack confidence or don't really know how to, but have like a real vision to want to. Mm -hmm. um, could your approach sometimes mean you might dismiss someone who fundamentally is made for great things but just hasn't found their feet yet? So, so the, one who's, the one who's great but hasn't got a great idea, there's a few of those that I've done things with later on right. and they brought okay. something else. It's just the first thing they've done wasn't, wasn't ideal. Yeah, okay. The, the person who's got an amazing business but isn't very good doesn't have an amazing business for very long. No. Or does things that I don't like. And, you know, reputation's everything. It just can't, I don't want to be associated with that type of thing. Mm, totally, totally respect that. And um, obviously you invest in some of the businesses that you uh, are on the board of, and you also just invest in businesses that you don't advise in any capacity. Um, it would be just fascinating to, to understand how you are able to create sort of 
distance and independence from a business that you have equity in? How do you approach that conundrum? Because I think it's quite an interesting one. So I think it's the opposite. And how on earth can I advise a business probably if, I, if I'm not at that table? I don't have a vested interest. Yeah, you know, and don't I, have it, alignment. It, it's alignment. Yeah. That's exactly the word. It's alignment. Oh. I, I need to know that if the board makes a decision and it goes wrong, it hurts me as much as it hurts everybody else. Oh. I, I need that to be the case. If it's not the case, I'm not a very good advisor. And you can't advise 25 different businesses at the same time. You just can't. You have a small number. You work with them well. You have to be aligned. You have to know that if the business is successful, the principles are successful, and I'm successful. I think that's fair. And likewise, if you're not, hey, you've got to take that pain as well. And obviously, as you say, you now have uh, a lot of demands on your time. Um, you know, Many of the businesses you've invested in and many of the boards you advise are, are mutual clients. Uh, and I've advised from a corporate finance perspective. I mean, how do you physically find the time to prioritize each business that you advise? Because each is the most important business to the relative shareholder groups. So, so two things is you roll on and off things. You know, I've, do, I've just done a couple of deals, which is for businesses that are growing. I, I won't be the chair going forward. That's just the way these things are. So you do a cycle of three to five years. You just do. because So there is a little bit of flux and change. Sometimes you sell something that's really good news, but then you drop off. So I think that there is a bit of that. It, you also work on the principle that not, not everybody's on fire or excited at the same time. So sometimes you have to over-service. You know, 10 o'clock on a, on a Sunday night, somebody might call and say, Neil, the world's ended. <laughs> I, I have to love that person and I have to take that call. If I didn't love that person, didn't want to take the call, I shouldn't be working with them. I really shouldn't. So you've just got to, I mean, you balance your time and I like being busy. You know, I like being busy. It's oh, being the time. It's probably the one thing that actually motivates you to be busy, and that's being busy. I think you thrive on uh, always finding yourself at the sharp end of business. Yeah, I do. And that's probably been demonstrated, Neil, throughout your entire career thus far. You know, you've never settled. You've always wanted more, and you've been willing. Yeah, I think deep for that. I think Carl, I did ten acquisitions when we were at Onyx, with the Onyx and the team. I've done twelve since then. I've got another four or five we're doing right now. I've done venture capital, I've done private equity, I've done angel investing, I've sold things. There's not much I haven't seen and done. I've got a lot of experience and that's what people want to tap into. Totally. You know, I've walked the journey that a lot of other people are either walking at the moment or about to walk. If you're a cheating exec, at least once a week, you're faced with a decision and you think, oh my God, what do I need to do here? How do I make the right decision? And you've often got no one to talk to. And I'm normally the person in, in those businesses that people ring up and say, Neil, what should I do? And, and I'll either say, that's the right thing to do, or I'll say, yeah, I did that once and this is what happened. <laughs> and they normally think, I'm really so pleased I'm... you told me that. It's just, yeah. it's experience. It's not, it's not uh, brains. And I think I said that at the beginning, I got a 2-2 at university and that. So I'm not the brightest, but I've got a lot of experience. I've seen a lot. I know a lot of people and I've seen a lot. And that's what people want. But it's the hindsight you have that people want to leverage, right? Because if they can learn from what you know and not make the mistakes that you've had to make to learn, that only feels right. And absolutely. And the, the other bit which is really interesting is in you, people probably don't realise that being a chief exec is a lonely job. Mm. It's a really lonely job. You've got the troubles of the world on your shoulders all the time. 
you've got X hundred people you employ and all the things that are going on there, which you have to love and care for and, and support. You've got business problems. You've often got shareholder things. It is a hard, lonely job. You know, when we were at Onyx, we had the dot-com crash. Yeah. We had the banking crisis. We had 9-11. Yeah, there's not, and since then we've had a pan global pandemic. So in a relatively short career, I've had four global catastrophes yeah. that really affect the business world. Yeah. But it really seems now that actually these things are more frequent yeah. uh, than infrequent, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Um, and I think that resilience, that ability to dig deep, and I guess that need sometimes to reprioritize is what is essential in business. And as you say, those are things that some of the boards that you work with probably are able to learn from you about and don't because they'll not have seen some of the things you've just talked about. I think it's just about co collectively, can you make the best decisions as a board? You mentioned earlier about uh, how I motivate people, how, how I inspire them. And, and I think I have, a, I have a bit of credibility because I've done stuff, but I like to make stuff fun as well. I like the... And, it's not that I play games, but I like to chuckle and have a laugh with my, with my chief execs and, and I'm forever encouraging them to do the things that I need them to do. And I, it, it's not carrot and stick, but you just you encourage them. You, have, you make it a bit fun. You make it a bit of a game. You know, they, they say, I've just won a million pound deal. And I say, well, that's the best you could do. I mean, I, I did a two million pound deal and you just got to have a bit of fun. Cause you, do. you do have to chuckle and, and that's the one thing Neil I mean there's many things I respect and admire about you but the one thing that I would definitely say stand out is that sometimes you will uh, in a situation you know use humour and sarcasm in a way to encourage action um, and I think that's something that few people do as well as you do mm. um, and of course you know it's tongue in cheek but there is often a meaning that you're delivering, but you know, in light-hearted fun, which you can't have a bit of fun. Of course, you do. Life's too short. Um, and uh, yeah, I respect that because often there's not enough fun in business, mm. actually. And if you don't enjoy what you do, why are you doing it, right? Absolutely. Sure. Um, I've got one final question, which I'd love to ask you before we before we bring this podcast to a close. But we're going to have to get you back because there's so much more that I wanted to discuss, which I've not had the chance to. Um, Obviously, we talked about um, your disappointment um, when you opened the A-level envelope. Uh, and we talked about the decisions you made um, during your um, degree at Sunderland University. If you could now sit opposite yourself and give your young self one bit of advice which would have materially benefited you if only you'd known sooner, what would that be? I think the bit I, I kind of, the mantra I've got, the, the thing I really believe is you've got to do what you love. And most people don't try enough things to work out what they love till they fall into something. Mm. And I was really lucky, really, really lucky. I found what I loved early. And I really did love it, by the way. I loved it. It was everything for me. You can see that. And I just did. It was just, and anybody who was there at the time and, and who knew me, I loved that business. I loved what I did. I think if you find what you love, and I found it early. I think that's your thing. If you know, if it's the Steve Jobs things, isn't it? If you look in the mirror too many days on the trot and think, I don't want to do what I'm doing today, you've got something's got to change. And I just loved what I did. And most of the time, even when the world was ended and even when we were having to do horrendous things, I just loved what I did. Loved it. 
Neil, massive thanks. It's been so great spending some time with you. And as I said, I'm definitely going to have to bribe you back onto a podcast in the future. But huge thanks for your time, Neil. Pleasure was all mine. It's been brilliant spending some time this afternoon with Neil Stevenson. And uh, we were absolutely delighted that he agreed to join us on this Confessions of a CEO podcast. It's been great to find out more about the man behind the business and indeed to understand the things that have driven Neil to become the entrepreneur and the individual he is today. Uh, We'll be inviting other CEOs, other non-exec directors and indeed entrepreneurs onto podcasts over the coming weeks. So if you'd like to view our podcast, please do visit the RG website. Uh, Do look at our social media channels and indeed, absolutely, if required, drop us a line. We'd be delighted to share with you a direct link. But for now, this has been Confessions of a CEO, powered by RG, and we look forward to seeing you soon.